Brought to you by the 2012 Toyota Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we are talking about after school specials today because you know what? It's school time. And for some of you, it might be after school. And I, I really personally, I, I just wanted to know about after school specials because in my brain, they are these kitschy, feel good, lesson teaching, imparting little videos that we watch now from time to time and say, huh, oh, look at Scott Bayo. He's too drunk. <laughs> I don't know that all of them were feel-good videos, though. Well, yeah. I mean, like Scott Bayo in The Boy Who Drank Too Much was, you know, it was pretty It was pretty tough to watch because he did get too drunk. Or there was the one, what was the name of the one where he, like, got all whacked out on drugs and fell in the water or something? Uh, I think you are referring to Stoned, when Scott Bayo smokes pot at school and gets really stoned. Not to be confused, though, with High School Narc, oh. which is not Scott, the star of Scott Bayo, but it does deal with marijuana in school. Yeah, Scott Bayo. A lot of people got their start from these things. Mm-hmm. Christy McNichol, Rob Lowe and his jaw. Uh, Helen Hunt. Oh, yeah. There's one very famous after school special. I don't know the title of it, uh, but it, it, it involves Helen Hunt trying angel dust, a.k.a. PCP, and then jumping through a window cautionary tale these so before this turns into me just uh (laughs) pretending to to be youtube and just recounting clips of after school specials uh we are talking specifically about abc after school specials although cbs also had their form of after school specials hbo even did similar kinds of after school specials but they ran on ABC from 1972 to 1995, it was the first network to do this. And the very first after-school special was actually a Hanna-Barbera animated feature. Yeah, about fictional birds. Yeah, it was called Last of the Curlews, and it was about conservation. It kind of reminded me of Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was all about these birds called the curlews, and it won an Emmy in 1973 for outstanding achievement in children's programming. My father would just say it was a liberal agenda movie. It, it was a liberal agenda <laughs> because movie. because it, it taught kids empathy and they learned about ecology and environmental problems. Uh, I mean, he's a man who can't sit through Wally hippies. He, yeah. Uh, yeah, after school specials, even though we might snicker at them now a little bit because they might seem a little bit cheesy, perhaps through our, our now 90210 jaded lens, uh, they would go on over their lifespan to garner 18 daytime Emmys, three blue ribbons at the American Film Festival, and a Peabody Award. So you would think that, you know, having won all these awards, that they would have been, they must have been really popular from the get-go. But according to producer Martin Taze, who did a lot of these episodes, most of the episodes, advertisers were not excited about these these shows. They they did kind of touch on a lot of racy topics, and they were very, they were a radical departure from a lot of the, the TV shows that were on at the time. But critics loved them. They loved this series, and they actually pressured ABC affiliates to take it more seriously. Well, yeah, because this was the first time that a network devoted that kind of primetime specifically 
to teenagers. Because if we look at TV, when this is going on, remember they were launched in 1972. We have Happy Days comes on air in 74. 1968, Mr. Rogers. 69, Sesame Street comes around. 73, we got Schoolhouse Rock. And then, because it's awesome, we must mention it, 1983, Reading Rainbow. Yeah. Hello. God, I love that. Should do an episode just on Reading we Rainbow. We should. But, uh, but those were all targeted toward younger audiences. Mm-hmm. So the after school specials were really an attempt to, to educate, have this, it's edutainment, uh, toward teens. And so they did tackle those tough topics like teen and adult alcoholism, Scott Bayo. <laughs> homosexuality, teen pregnancy, drug abuse, domestic violence, STDs, teen suicide, child molestation, um, also divorce, such as one of my favorite after-school specials, My Dad Lives in a Downtown Hotel, which happens when Bo Bridges and his wife get divorced, and Billy, their child, has to go visit Bo Bridges in a Downtown Hotel. Huh. Yes. Well, um, in an episode of NPR's On the Media, which aired in June 2005, they took a look at these these wonderful episodes of learning. And uh, they quoted Chicago Tribune media writer Maureen Ryan, who said that it just seemed like there was much more of an air of exploration in terms of topics that might now today be considered inappropriate for kids or young adults. Yeah, I feel like parents are very sensitive about what their kids watch. But these were these were <laughs> these were learning tools, and uh, they point out that while these after-school specials may have been melodramatic, they acknowledged that there was more to adolescence than sock hops of happy days. Yeah, uh, these were happening in an interesting time because they're sort of sandwiched between, on the one side, this moral panic about. Uh, television becoming more sexualized and violent. There were all of these um, stories in like Time Magazine and Newsweek talking about connections between uh, violence on television and rising rates of teenage violence, um, and also concerns fueled by the Cold War about whether or not kids were being adequately educated, this new and younger generation. But then on the other side, you do have the opening up of... Uh, uh, you know, it's the swing in 70s. So you have the publication in 1970 of uh, everything you always wanted to know about sex, but were too afraid to ask. Two years later, The Joy of Sex comes out. 1973, Our Bodies, Ourselves. You have drug culture going on. Um, so you have sandwiched in the middle of this, these after-school specials that were trying to appease the the moral panic, the need for, a desire for, uh, education on the boob tube that's coming down from from parents and also addressing these very real issues that teens are confronting. Yeah, and this is uh, referred to as the turn to relevance for TV because you have commercial TV that people are all up in arms about. It's all sexy times and violence, but it's becoming more socially conscious to sort of become an educational tool for young people. And this is all talked about in a study from Julie Elman in 2010 talking about how adolescence was sort of uh, redefined during this time as 
just a, a period in your life to all of a sudden now it's something to overcome. It's a disability you have to get over. Well, and you also have to take into account the changing family dynamics that were going on as well with more mothers working outside the home. So you have all of these latchkey kids. All of a sudden, you've got divorce on the rise. And again, because of the lack of supervision, perhaps from both parents working, uh, you have youth TV intake becoming less supervised. So you mentioned producer Martin Toss. Uh, he decided with these after-school specials that he would draw from popular adolescent literature and keep tabs on Publishers Weekly to essentially see what the kids were reading and then format the shows similarly or even directly from these young adult novels. For instance, uh, Francine Pascal, who wrote the Sweet Valley High series, um, she had a novel, The Hand-Me-Down Kid, turned into an after-school special in 1983. And it's all about how a younger sibling is sick of getting hand-me-downs, so she steals her sister's bike. But then, of course, that bike gets stolen. Lesson learned about stealing. Well, then what happens? Uh, well, and then I guess she's fine with taking hand-me-downs. I have a feeling <laughs> at the end she gets a new outfit. Because generally, there is some kind of need that's satisfied. You know, and the kid feels okay at yeah. the end. Well, a lot of, uh, one of the points that they bring up about this whole series is that there aren't miracles in these shows. That oftentimes, when these horrible things happen, whether it's, oh my god, I don't get a new outfit, or whoops, I got my girlfriend pregnant, often these are things that the kids themselves have to deal with and resolve, and, and they don't just like magically, you know, like an episode in Full House, just magically get resolved in 30 minutes. Right. They have to undergo some tough circumstances in order to, reach the other side. And a lot of it is about, yeah, the kind of the pluckiness of youth and having to overcome peer pressure or just general loneliness and angst. Although Elman, whose thesis we've cited, uh, did take issue with how gender shakes out a lot of times in the after-school specials. Um, she points out that topics are often focused around male protagonists to begin with because of the notion that girls are going to watch something about boys, but not vice versa. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times... If a female protagonist does have a problem, it usually required a male love interest to come along who probably had already dealt with a similar kind of issue to guide her to the solution. Whereas when the tables were turned and you have uh, a boy who's trying to overcome something, the women or the women, it's the girls who are still kind of relegated to the side just to be caretakers, but not necessarily catalysts for change. Yeah, a lot of her study does touch on uh, divisions of gender and able-bodiedness and what that means as far as heteronormativity and traditional masculinity and femininity. Yeah, she essentially uh, makes the point that able-bodiedness is used as a kind of a uh, symbol for heteronormativity because mm-hmm. you have this arc of, uh, you know, you start out with some kind of handicap and a lack of love interest. And as someone will overcome some kind of uh, disability, then the love interest will come along. So you have them able-bodied and hooked up by the end, sort of linking those two things together. 
Yeah, she calls this a rehabilitative approach in representing teen problems and addressing teen viewers. And really, like I mentioned earlier, talks about overcoming disability and defines um, adolescence as you're you're not being able-bodied. You you might even kind of have a disability. And so this whole thing becomes a developmental stage defined by exposure to and weathering of the dysfunction. And speaking of heteronormativity, uh, sexuality was something that did come up in a number of after-school specials, and there were some that that dealt specifically with teens um, coming out. But uh, Reese over at Autostraddle.com talks about uh, the 1986 HBO slash Canadian cable company special, The Truth About Alex, which is, it's not an ABC after-school special, but it's in the same vein of these after-school specials. And again... Starring Scott Bayo. I love that this episode could just be co-titled uh, Scott Bayo. The Rise of Scott Bayo. <laughs> yes. Uh, and she writes, uh, for many young homosexuals, the truth about Alex was the first time they saw themselves on screen. And that was profound enough and positive. But the real lesson of the film hides behind the ostensibly decent portrayal. Because outside of those things, the survival of coming out of the closet and ex- an eventual acceptance from a handful of family and friends, the life of a gay person was seen as a relentless and destructive battle against the world. If you come out, be prepared for everything to unravel around you. So it is sort of, um, it's a positive, but still with these negative detractors of saying, hey, be brave, young person, and be who you are, but still be ready for a lifetime of hell. Exactly. She goes on to cite some uh, episodes that focus particularly on uh, young gay people in high school. There's 1987 CBS School Break special, What If I'm Gay?, where friends, uh, this guy's friends find his gay porn collection. It ended up being nominated for three daytime Emmys and actually won one. Um, in 1993, there was another CBS episode called Other Mothers, and Meredith Baxter was one of the mothers, and she ended up coming out years later. That was recently, right? That was just like two years ago or something? Uh, Other Mothers was in 1993. Oh, when she came out. Oh, uh, that Yeah, I want to say it was, yeah, 2003. Yeah. Uh, and then there was 1994, an HBO episode called More Than Friends, The Coming Out of Heidi Leiter. I think that's how it's pronounced. But yeah, so there was a focus on uh, gay and lesbian students. But like Kristen said, there was still the downside of you have a lot of junk to deal with. Well, it was similar, too, to how uh, sex was dealt with, especially when it comes to STDs and unintended pregnancies, because this is going back to Elman's uh, paper and television in New Media. She talks about how uh, while, yeah, sex, teen sex was depicted a lot, but STDs were always um, depicted as some kind of punishment, a moral punishment for promiscuity as was accidental pregnancy a lot of times, saying like, hey, well, you know, you can do this, but if you aren't, you know, 100% monogamous, you're going to get a horrible STD and terrible things will rain down upon you. Yeah, this is part of what she called medicalized entertainment, which was a style of literary slash televisual narratives that emerged around this time to basically transmit images of medical knowledge and often disability for public consumption. So here you've got this this health issue. Um, let's let's teach you about it in kind of a, an entertaining way so that you'll know more about it and hopefully avoid it. Yeah, I mean, I will say, like, 
um, considering the time that these were on the air and considering how, how new it was and how revolutionary it was that this was the first time that the teen experience was really being valued and portrayed on television, I think that you have to, to take after school specials as, I don't know, I, I think that they were, a good thing because mm-hmm. they did portray all of these different issues, even though they might seem kind of kitschy now. Um, not the issues themselves, but how they, um, came across. And it would be interesting to see, like, if obviously after school specials don't really exist today in the same format, but how we might deal with them differently. But I guess maybe we don't, uh, we don't need after school specials anymore because a lot of these issues have been mainstreamed into yeah. primetime dramas or dramedies, comedies like Glee. You have things like 90210 going back in time a little bit, which came out, uh, first in October of 1990. You have the OC, Dawson's Creek, all this other stuff where they interweave these kinds of uh, issues into incredibly dramatic plot lines. Yeah, Dawson's Creek, you learn that the brunette is always the one that you trust. You don't ever trust the new blonde who comes to town. And I, I also think a really good thing about these episodes, like Kristen said, even though they're a little cheesy, um, they do feature a lot of different kinds of people, a lot of different young people of different ethnic backgrounds, ages, family situations. And uh, Elman says that this whole imagined coming of age as a process of developing liberal individualism by offering lessons in tolerance. So showing different types of people and what they go through instead of just maybe your run-of-the-mill Happy Days cast. Yeah, and I think one of the great things, too, about after-school specials um as opposed to or in comparison to the kinds of teen dramas that we see on TV today is that, especially when it comes to their economic backgrounds, it was a lot of lower middle class, you know, everyday kids just going through life. Whereas a lot of times now what we see, you turn on Gossip Girl and it's all, you know, fabulously wealthy kids. Even the poorest among them is clearly, obviously, incredibly wealthy um and so a lot of it's more like stylized and even the middle class is portrayed to be like far above the actual living standards of the current middle class yeah well one thing that definitely was not stylized at all is a show that i watched in my eighth grade i guess it was maybe our break period or something and that's degrassi junior high yeah if there were i mean I gotta say that I, in homeschool, I did not watch Degrassi. Mm-hmm. I've heard about Degrassi for a while. Last year, in fact, a friend of mine, uh, who really has a love for, uh, 80s and 90s culture asked me about it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I've just never seen it. And she was like, you gotta watch Degrassi. Did you, which version did you watch? Cause there's like 50. I started from the beginning with oh, Degrassi sorry. Junior High and Caroline, I didn't leave my room for a few days because I got, <laughs> they're amazing. I got hooked. I was 26 years old on a Degrassi junior high marathon. Yeah. Well, they are. I just remember thinking when I was watching them in class, like, <laughs> this is so stupid, right guys? This is so, wow. I can't believe they're actually talking about this. Wow. Yeah. They, <laughs> they hit all of the kinds of issues that after school specials did, but it was somehow better. I feel like because they just pulled in actual kids from the neighborhood, like the clothes that they wear, 
were closed from their closet. Mm-hmm. And uh, Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High ran on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, uh, from 1987 to 1991. And then there's Degrassi The Next Generation. Not to be confused with Star Trek. <laughs> Correct. That started in 2001. But you found some uh, some differences as to specifically because it was broadcast in Canada about why they could tackle some of the issues that they did more right. freely. Yeah, well, uh, I guess I never thought about the differences between Canada and the U.S. as far as, like, cultural taboos and things like that, because I just don't think of our countries as that different, maybe socially, but maybe they are. Um, but yeah, Linda Schuler, who's the producer, said that Degrassi needed to be more entertaining than an after-school special because it was all about finding the authenticity of these characters' voices and emotions, about really tackling issues that kids were talking about and that came into play when they had an episode about abortion because there wasn't really an issue in Canada about airing this episode. It was like, okay, well, this is something that kids are worried about. This is something that happens in society. Let's talk about it. But it was actually pulled in the U.S. because the uh, the network The Inn, I don't recall this network or anything, but uh, The Inn actually refused to air the abortion episode. And so the New York Times ended up writing a piece on it like, ooh, Degrassi's tackling society's last taboo. And Schuler's response to that was basically like, well, it's not really our last taboo. Um, it's just a different national context. And so there's this book called Programming Reality Perspectives on English and Canadian Television that said that Degrassi went places that American TV was afraid to go and that that national context really does affect what type of stories can be told on TV. Yeah, I mean, i got to say, if, it, if it's a contest between ABC school specials versus Degrassi, I mean, hands down, it's Degrassi. Anyone who out there who's not watched, I'm not, this might get me on another Degrassi kick. <laughs> I'm just saying. You've got to go home right now and watch it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there's also the issues. We haven't really talked about girls and feminism and how that's uh, presented on these shows. Kristen Pike uh, in 2011 for an essay in uh, Girlhood Studies, which is a journal, uh, she did an analysis of episodes featuring tomboys and explored how these after-school specials circulated ideas of feminism and femininity to young viewers. And her study demonstrates how these after-school specials targeted girls through images of female progress and independence while simultaneously cautioning them about the dangers of women's lib. So it's the same kind of thing that we talked about when they featured gay students on these episodes. It's like, okay, yeah, go be yourself. Go be, go be a strong woman, a strong young woman. But, but you're, you're kind of a tomboy and you're different and, yeah, there could be consequences. Be be prepared. Yeah, and they said she said that uh, the series trend of taming tomboys. So like, ooh, you're a tomboy, but now you found a love interest, so everything is better. Um, it's actually connected to the backlash against women and gay rights movements. So. Did this help TV, hurt TV? Uh, Elman and her study said that it rehabilitated TV's image, that now kids have something productive to watch, more constructive, um, you know, maybe portraying sexual issues as productive. Sure, but at the same time, though, I feel like there was somewhat of a drop-off because you transition from after-school specials really into 90210. Is the is the biggest thing to pick up from that? Yeah. Um. 
So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to, to hear what other people who might have watched more after school specials at the time when they were airing and parents today who are concerned about TV programming, what they think about it. And I don't know, maybe, or maybe if it's, if it's a moot point that we shouldn't be so concerned about, like, what kind of education kids are receiving from television rather than, you know, education that they are receiving from school and books and other outlets like podcasts. <laughs> um, but I think that, I, but I'm glad that we took this look inside of after school specials. Inside of Scott Bayo's career. Yes. Because uh, I really, I didn't know where they came from. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where, and they're not from a stork. They are from <laughs> the brains of ABC and producer Martin Toss. Yeah. So. There we go. And I think, you know, folks out there, if you would like an episode completely devoted to Degrassi, I wouldn't be remiss. But we I have, would have to go back and do a lot of homework. Yeah, but let so us, maybe just go watch it on your own. Let us know if you want that, though. So we could do it. <laughs> I really just want an excuse to watch more Degrassi. Because I still haven't seen The Next Generation. I digress. So, any after-school special letters you have to send our way, momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send them. Now, before we get into listener letters, I do have a quick message for you from Netflix, which is partially responsible for bringing you this episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You. And it is the perfect time to talk about Netflix because we are talking about after school specials. We've ticked off a number of our favorites. And if you would, for instance, like to take a trip back in TV time and watch some of the ABC after school specials. You can watch on Netflix, for instance, the 1981 to 1982 after school specials edition, which features a young Rob Lowe in the after school special, A Matter of Time. Now, if you want to find out a matter of time for what and what young Rob Lowe is doing in that after school special. All you need to do is go to Netflix.com because as a new Netflix member and a Stuff Mom Never Told You listener, you can get a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to Netflix.com slash mom and sign up and be sure to use that URL so that they know that Caroline and I sent you. Now this free 30 day trial is not going to be around forever so do not delay. Head on over to netflix.com slash mom for that free 30 day trial membership. Now back to our listener letters. Uh, we've got a letter here from Bree talking about our episode on self-harm and she says she's been uh, self-harming off and on for about 10 years um, and talks about the addiction factor Um, and I just wanted to uh, read a couple of things in her her letter because we don't have time to read the entire thing Um, she says I do agree that the subject is not often talked about because people just think it is an adolescent slash teen white girl problem and that eventually they will grow out of it being an African-American woman, I was often told that this was a white problem and that I, that I should just stop because black people don't cut themselves. Yes, people actually say these things. Also, a lot of people do not believe men harm themselves, but that's also true. I kept quiet about my cutting for almost a year until I confided in a friend and it all went down from there. Soon it seemed that all of my friends were harming themselves in some ways and we were all on a path of toward death. Thankfully, most of them grew out of it and have found other ways to cope when they're feeling down. 
So she also offers some pointers、uh, to help treat people who are cutting if someone is concerned. She says, "Don't ever take or throw away or hide a person's personal cutting tools, boxes, etc. Doing this seems helpful, but it can break the trust you have with this person, and it could make the person who is cutting find something quick and really sharp to use at the moment. And in their frantic state, they could not be as careful, and it, and it could end up badly." Also, don't shame them or make them feel like they're worthless. It will be really hard at first, and sometimes you might say something you regret. But just take some deep breaths and try to focus on the main point. Remember that everyone is different. Don't treat the person as if they were someone you see on TV or read in a book. Remember that you can't force anyone to stop harming themselves. They have to want to stop in order to progress. All that a person can really do is be supportive and know that you are thinking about them and you want them to get better. So thanks to Bree for that insight. And I have a letter from Kristen about our soda pop cast. Hey, she says, I grew up in Palmer, Alaska, a smaller city north of Anchorage. In Alaska, we have many villages which we call the bush that are not connected to the rest of Alaska by roads and are therefore only acceptable by airplane or float plane. Boat, snow machine, and/or dog sled. In these villages, everything is much, much more expensive. In 2008, I remember a gallon of gas hitting $12. I remember learning that in many bush villages, babies, children, and young adults are beginning to experience very serious dental problems because healthy drinks such as water and milk are very expensive, but unhealthy drinks, mostly soda, are affordable for women with children. These mothers put soda in bottles for their babies, and their children grow up drinking soda as the main or even only daily drink that contributes not only to problems you mentioned in the podcast, including weight gain and diabetes, but also major dental problems. Imagine the cavities a baby would develop if it drinks solely sugared soda while teething. I'm not sure how big of a problem this continues to be in the bush, but it's an image that has always stuck with me, and I wanted to share. So thank you for that information, Kristen. And thanks to everyone who's written in. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send all of your after-school special letters and any other letters on your mind. And also head over to Facebook. Let us know. Post a YouTube video of your favorite after-school、uh, special. There are a lot of them up on YouTube.、And、you can also find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast and on Tumblr StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And of course, you can get smarter during the week by heading to our website. It's howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the 2012 Toyota Camry. It's ready. Are you?